Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, Fast Company had a really interesting article about where are people moving in America? And with global climate change happening, it seems like we as Americans are moving to the places where climate change is impacting people the most. And here's the best paragraph I read. In Phoenix, where a drought has lasted for 27 years so far, one source of water, the Colorado River, may soon dry up. The city is also getting hotter, with a record number of days over 110 degrees Fahrenheit in 2020. At the same time, the population continues to expand. Over the last decade, Phoenix grew faster than any other American city, and Arizona was one of the fastest growing states. In Michigan, on the other hand, a state that's likely to be relatively less likely impacted by climate change, the population grew slowly. A recent Census Bureau map shows the overall trend. Many Americans have been moving to areas that are likely going to be harder hit by climate impacts. And Don, the article just kind of goes on to show that Americans love to live in places where there's less water and it's getting hotter. What did you think about the article? In a sense, I wasn't surprised. I mean, you've heard about these states, Florida, Texas, Arizona, California. People want to move there. It's no surprise. It's really nice there. Yeah. Florida, except Florida. Florida's kind of trashy. Even Florida has its own appeal, I think, to people. Obviously, it's on the water and stuff like that. According to the article, just in during the COVID year, from April 2020 to April 2021, Florida increased its population by another 330,000 people. And these are all people that I got to assume are now putting themselves into hurricane zones and into flooding zones. You look at climate change projection models and Florida's losing parts of its land just to the rising sea levels. It's interesting from that perspective just to see where people are moving. And then this summer, I got to go out west. I'd never really been to western Colorado, and I I saw drought everywhere. And I saw major forest fire warnings and stuff like that. Don't burn burn fires here. They talked about the Colorado River shrinking and, and being at a lower level than ever before. And yet more and more people are moving out there, and they are beautiful places. Absolutely, they are. But I think people think, in a sense, you can't have it both ways. There's been talk for years and years about taking the Great Lakes water and sending it out west to Arizona and to California. And then so much so that there was legislation passed by Great Lakes states forbidding this. But it was that people want it both ways. They want the water. They want the sunshine every day. And who can blame them? It kind of is like that if you live these places. I lived in Palm Springs for five years. It was sunny every single day. In February, it was over 60 and sunny every single day. And it's hard to complain. It's actually a wonderful place to live if you don't mind the 120 degree summers and the persistent drought and wildfire smoke and 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 (laughs) well that's what they kind of said was like utah is basically one of the fastest growth places by percentage and they just said that anybody who's moving to utah essentially is going to see extreme drought the increase in wildfires now a lot of air pollution is also going over there from all the wildfires in california and texas you also have tremendous heat you know there's been these interesting studies that said like our western states in america it's possible the last one to 200 years were actually an abnormality of it was actually wetter than maybe it really historically is there. And yet people are moving there in droves. And you just sort of wonder at what point can they just not sustain this many people? You've got lots of baby booner retirers that want to move down to Arizona, New Mexico, beautiful areas. But at what point can they just not hold all these people? There's not enough water, not enough resources. Well, I think 
there's two different groups here. There's the groups of people that are affected by storms and natural disasters and the ones that's just drought. And if it's just drought, it seems like that should be a solvable problem. And you could be able to put a price on it. And that if you really want to live in Phoenix, how much are you willing to pay for water? Because if you can price water high enough, you can find an equilibrium where you'll just use very, very little water. There's a company in California that does gray water systems for people's houses, which means it takes the shower water and the sink water, purifies it, and use it for the lawn. That's fine. It's a $30,000 system, but it's conceivable to put that on a house and then you can water your lawn. And you can take short showers and you can use low flow this and low flow that. Or better yet, you can say, all right, we're going to really price this water accurately and maybe make a giant desalinization plant and pipe water up from the Gulf of Mexico or wherever. There are prices and possibilities for these drought areas that make it all reasonable. The only thing that really doesn't make sense is golf courses. Oh, wait, that's part of the reason people want to move there, right? Yeah, great golf year round, right? It's always fun to watch those golf tournaments in Arizona where you just see desert and then this just lush, beautiful green. And all you can think is just how much water they must need to keep that alive. But I guess my thing is, is from hearing you, do you think this is an issue? I I feel like this is sort of one of those long-term issues, kind of like the national debt, I guess. It's out there. It doesn't seem good long-term and yet we're just going to keep doing it. You seem optimistic or you seem to think this is a non-issue. Am I correct? Maybe it's because I love living in those places and I'd like to move back to someplace like that. And I love visiting <laughs> those places and they're beautiful and wonderful. And yes, the water is kind of like constantly hanging over your head the way a lot. I like your analogy to the national debt. It's just something that we're it's a constant problem and is just not going away. And it is what it is. And that's what these water issues are these places. And in that way, I think it's a distinctly different place than the places like where they're looking at hurricanes coming all the time and losing land like Florida. And eventually you could just say, all right, we're going to find a way to make this work by recycling, reusing, maybe farming less, maybe doing what we can with the existing situation. Those are possible solutions. Well, one of the things, though, is I feel like all of these are growth models in terms of city growth models, but they've all been based upon the idea of a stable climate, right? We've always assumed that there'll just be a stable supply of water. And these are like fundamental assumptions that maybe we're now starting to realize aren't so fundamental. And what I wonder is, are we sure that a place like California shouldn't be a major agricultural mecca? I mean, can we continue to have as much agriculture there and support those many people that live there all in one hand? Or as a nation, do you need to start thinking about food policy? My dad was talking about this a couple months ago, but I don't know. Do we need to start looking at places and say, you know what? Like it's more important that we grow food there for our own national consumption or even international trade than support people there. And is it possible at some point the trade-offs have to be, we can allow people or we can allow agriculture. You can't have both. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And if you're in economics class, you draw a production possibilities curve. But the limiting factor here is water. How much water do you have? Can you uh, support this many houses or this many almond trees? And the crops that are grown in California, that's where the majority of our fruit and vegetables come from. That's where all our eating oranges come from. Our orange juice oranges come from Florida, but our eating oranges come from California. And the vast majority of the almonds, not just in our country, but I believe in the world, are coming from the Central Valley, which I drove through this year when we went through California. And they need a tremendous amount of water. And we passed this aqueduct over and over and over again to see this 
lush flood running uh mountain crystal clear water and it's going to these trees and stuff and if we price it accurately then the farmers aren't going to be able to afford it but that's not the way water rights work the way water rights work is whoever tapped into that river first in the 1800s or whatever they have first rights to it and so it's the resnick family and linda resnick owns the water rights for all the almonds and pomegranates in california and she's a billionaire she has a bunch of water. Maybe she should take the water away and give it to the people that want to live there for their houses and their faucets. But this is a total change. It's almost like a switch to an authoritarian or command economy. It's like when the government comes and says, we're going to build a freeway and we're taking your house away. It's a gigantic change in policy. Well, you've got this, this huge archaic legal system, as you hinted at, about who owns the water rights and stuff like that. And therefore, your argument earlier about, well, just let's let, let, the, let's let the market decide kind of how we're going to prioritize this or who gets the water. But let's just say you and your wife, you finally finish your illustrious careers in public education and you decide we're moving back to California. We want to build a new McMansion somewhere <laughs> and we need our water, right? And you know what? Maybe you're willing to pay for that. I just wonder if at some point it's short-sighted and it squeezes out agriculture in a way that maybe we're not thinking of now and maybe we might need in the future. And I just wonder if maybe that's really what this is kind of saying is, look, we can live here, but at the same time, there has to come to a cost of we're going to drain aquifers that are down below the ground. You hear about that happening in places like Texas and stuff like that. There's less water there. And it just seems like at some point, maybe this there's a tipping point to this. Or is it just, hey, you know what? The people that are moving to these places They've got resources, and therefore, when these places start to turn bad or not enough water, the rich will just leave. But ultimately, then, how many of these people that will be stuck there will be retirees that sort of took their nest egg? They had one chance to move, they made the move, and now all of a sudden they're stuck in these like desert towns where they can't afford anything, almost like a new rust belt, if you will. You talk about the towns in the Midwest that, you know, the factories left, and there's just kind of people that are still there, but life is just not as economically viable as it once was? Do you think maybe just there'll be people left in ghost towns in these desert areas? I think agriculture will get priced out before the people. I mean, we can buy our salad, our vegetables, our fruits from other places that have it flown in, just like we do with blueberries and strawberries that are flown in from South America in the winter. We can do that. We have the money as a society to buy that. And not everybody's buying strawberries and blueberries in the winter. They're buying it because they have the money and the resources to do so. And it's expensive, but it's worth it to them. And I think what's more valuable is the land as a place for people to live. And they don't mind spending more for food. For the wealthy American and even the average American, food's a fairly small part of the budget. And so we can afford to have higher food prices. And we might lose the almonds. Well, we might lose the almonds. That's what's happening this year. We're not getting as many <laughs> almond trees. And I love almonds as much as the next guy, but I think that's the one that goes. I think that you're going to have the aquifers, as you mentioned, are already nearly drained. And that's something, a problem that we can't see a lot like the national debt. And it's just going to happen. And yeah, maybe the rich leave, but I think the rich are leaving Florida when their place is flooded out before they're leaving California, because if you can afford water, you can afford water. Somebody will sell you water at a high price. And if it eventually is worth it, and this is what I would like to see is desalinization wind farm put up a giant wind farm when the wind's blowing fast you're you got your turbines generate a lot of electricity turn that into clean fresh water and ship it ashore i mean somebody's going to make money doing that i know it takes a lot of energy to desalinize water 
but this is an ideal thing for renewables because it can happen when it happens. When If the wind blows like crazy for a week, then doesn't blow for a week, that's okay. We're just making water when it happens. And so there are possibilities to this. I just don't think they're the problems that pressing yet. Maybe not yet. And maybe that's part of it is the market hasn't told us it's a problem yet. I just think that, you know, something like access to water seems like kind of a fundamental right for humans. And when we talk about what will let the market, you know, kind of dictate this, I think in some ways that works. But I think once you have a lot of people that are just kind of there and they're not able to move, I think you've got an even bigger issue. And and one of the things the article just sort of talked about is, we have sort of working groups in our government that are thinking about things like international migration due to climate change. And you might have all of these climate refugees pushing up against the borders, trying to get in to countries that aren't being as impacted by climate change. But we don't have any domestic working groups thinking about domestic migration in America. And I do wonder, don't you think we should have some office in our government that is sort of thinking about this long term, about how this impacts places, how growth happens, and where people may or may not be moving? And do you think we should start having harder conversations about, look, we're all full here? And I realize that that is, (laughs) I I realize that, that that's like, you know, not a very American idea. But I do think if you should have municipalities that are kind of saying, like, look, until somebody wants to move, we, we just can't sustainably keep people here. That's not the way local government works. Well, okay, for two things. First thing I want to say is, one, is that maybe it becomes a seasonal thing. So, like, we planned our trip to California initially in August, and then we, my wife's like, you know, the wildfires are in August. We should go in early July. So we went in early July before the wildfire season really got. That's such a natural conversation, by the way. No, honey, we can't have vacation here because the annual wildfires are going like crazy. And she was right. And it worked out perfect. And we timed our trip just right. This is a tragedy and we shouldn't be talking about this way, but it is what we, it is like, okay, well, we want to avoid this. So we'll go during this time. So there's that. Secondly, I don't think local governments aren't going to say we're full. The Vermont is offering $10,000 for workers to move to Vermont because they need workers. And during the pandemic, many people have left big cities like San Francisco and New York and Washington, DC and Boston to find areas that are prettier, less congested, more spacious, because they can work from home. So people are moving a little bit from this. Maine had a huge problem with lack of workers, and it's slowly, population is growing. Michigan's population was shrinking until very recently, and it's growing a little bit, a little bit. So yes, people are moving. In some places like Montana and Idaho, people are moving there in droves, because it's a very cool looking area, and it's nice, and the weather's better. And the people there that are existing are going to say, No, we want it not to change the whole NIMBY thing. But at the same time, the government is going to want the more tax revenue. The people that are running things and have businesses are going to want more customers, which will create more jobs. And even though people that are pre-existing are going to be, oh, I don't really like the way this has changed, it's still going to be an overall boon. Just like you often talk of your hometown of Traverse City, which was kind of a sleepy up north town, is now a quite a mega, not a mega city, but a pretty big metropolis of vacationers, people that want to live in this cool place with nice weather. And it's changed the city. And although your parents have been there for a long time, I bet they like the new restaurants. I bet they like the, uh, all the new things that are going up. I totally agree with what you're saying. And and you're right. Like Traverse City has, has boomed and, and you could say it's a very cool, dynamic looking city than it was 20 years ago. And there's lots of other places 
in Michigan that have also benefited from this sort of growth. But once again, you mentioned like Idaho and Montana, these are places that are being impacted by climate change. And yet the growth is there. And yet there's still that fundamental assumption that the climate is going to be like it was 30 years ago, that the rainwater or that the water supply is going to be like it was 30 years ago. And it seems like you're maybe selling people on on some sort of a dream of beauty today. We'll figure out everything else tomorrow. And you're right, like a lot of cities want growth because that's how you increase your taxes and it's how you increase what you, you know, the sorts of services you can do. But I just sort of wonder if it's all very short-sighted and maybe something that people should be thinking about. I guess you could say cities like San Francisco, you went there this summer and from what you were telling me and what some other people that I know who live there or who have been around the area say is, I guess you could say cities do have their own sort of stay out growth policies. And that's either by pricing out people who can't afford to move there or by having all sorts of weird local restriction laws that make it really difficult to build new things. And maybe in a way they do have their own way of keeping people out. Yeah, they do. They uh, they just price them out and then they let in people, but only if they're extremely wealthy. And that would be the way it works in New York City and San Francisco and San Diego and Vancouver and places like that. But those are because those are constrained in by water. There's not a lot of space there. And this places where people want to live that are not constrained in, they just grow. They just get bigger and bigger and bigger, like Vegas. Vegas is a gigantic town now, and it just sprawls out into an ever-expanding desert where there's no water, but people want to live there because it's sunny and there's cool stuff there. So it is what it is. I don't think the government is in general very good at all with long-term planning. I mean, our best what are our best long-term plans as a society? We did the Eisenhower Highway System, which was an excellent long-term plan, but it wasn't about like, we're going to value this place over that place. And we're in general not good at that. We're good at short-term planning. And politicians aren't really elected for the short term. They're elected every four, two, or six years. And so it is not their goal to long-term plan. It's their goal to get reelected, to make people happy today, even if it is mostly impossible. That's a good point. And I, I do wonder if actually local municipalities are actually better at long-term planning than than the you know state and federal government because you tend to have people that live in those communities and think a little deeper about it and you have people that probably show up at council meetings the one thing i've always been impressed with was is is the way that traverse city michigan has grown they've really thought a lot about density they've thought about you know how high can buildings be and the area has grown i think in a way that's kind of responsible although the surrounding area now continues to increase but i feel like people have made fairly rational decisions that have taken in a lot of input. One of the things in the article, though, is they just talked about, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, is places like Maine, Buffalo, New York, Duluth, Minnesota. These are all places that are most likely to be less impacted by climate change. And can they get more people? And and one of the things I just sort of wrote down is, where would you rather live, young millennial, hipster, cool guy who works in tech and can be (laughs) remote? Would you rather live in Buffalo, New York or Moab, Utah, right? And probably a lot of them are picking Moab, but yet I don't know if it's very sustainable to be there. And yet Buffalo could be less likely impact, probably cheaper to live there as well. Yeah. But people are making decisions based upon what they like, what they're going to enjoy as a lifestyle. And where you live says something about yourself. I do want to tell you that when we moved back from California, I felt like I hung my head a little bit. Like when I lived in California <laughs> and had California license plates, people are like, oh, you live in California. That's so cool. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm cool. We live in California. I felt good about that. Felt good about my California driver's license. 
And then when I came back here, I was like, oh, just a Michigan person. And my wife, who's now living in the town that she grew up in, and for a long time would make a point of saying, I left. I left. I moved to Ann Arbor for five years. I lived to California for five years. I haven't been here the whole time. And because it was just a cool place to be. And it wasn't just cool because the reputation it made you feel good to say California. It was neat. It was different. And it was a lot of fun. And I was re reminded of that this year. That said, I don't know if I'm actually moving there. I'm pretty long on Michigan here. Our weather's nice. Our towns are nice. And I feel good about where I live and what I do. It's, it's hard to say that I really want to go, but it would be so nice. There are some cool places. Maybe I could just visit them and live sustainably here where there's a plethora of water and reasonable temperatures. I always make the joke that we're kind of like a two-star state, right? It's, it's fine. Michigan is fine. That's our, that should be our advertising campaign to people. <laughs> but I, I do think you make a good point. And one of the things that I've always thought about is, why isn't Michigan maybe playing up a longer-term story here of, isn't this the time to start buying up Michigan now? If you're, if you're the billionaires, right? Shouldn't you be buying up Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota land? Because again, we'll probably be less impacted. And at some point, maybe businesses do want to move here because of the sort of not being impacted by climate change as much. And, you know, you could say, well, hey, look at the property, you know, values now. Go to Traverse City, the Leelanau Peninsula, or anywhere on the coast, and you could say, those are hot property markets right now. And there are a lot of millionaires that are moving in and buying up vacation properties or anything. So maybe that's a hard way to kind of judge the area. What I wonder is, is should you start putting together an, a property index of like Midland, Gaylord, Grayling, Jackson, these sort of middle of the state places that, hey, there's a lot of agricultural work that could be done there. And is that maybe the index to kind of see if people are now starting to recognize a place like Michigan as somewhere where they want to be or have their uh, escape compound when everything goes wrong? And maybe that's the way to judge how people are moving in the future. I was thinking along the same lines in that we talked not long ago about uh, Russia being a great breadbasket and growing because of climate change will allow this giant area of Siberia to be farmed that hasn't really been farmed successfully before. Maybe we need to aim a little further north. Germfask. It's a tiny town in the UP where they uh, held conscientious objectors in World War II. I think there was a terrible crime there recently. But the land, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. We could probably buy a ton of land there and just own it, just hang on to it and see when it becomes valuable to farm or live on or wherever. Well, one of your favorite billionaires there, Bill Gates, I know he's become almost one of the largest landowners in America. He's been quietly buying up agricultural land. A lot of people talk about how good farmland is one of the best investments you can make right now. I do wonder if you make a point. I mean, the latest census data says that Arizona grew by 5%, Utah almost 5%, Texas at 3.85%, South Carolina almost 4 and you know Colorado at 3.5%, Florida at about 3%. Michigan only grew at 2% population. It makes you wonder if there is a longer-term market value if climate change continues and people are looking for places where they can find productive land or land to live on where they're not going to be paying these sorts of high costs. Maybe you should go make this investment done. At the moment, the economics are not there. And I think that that is your point of the whole is that if this gets priced out. If this makes a problem where it's a problem, people can't live there. And the reason Texas is growing and specifically Houston is growing fast is that it's a very good place to live for economic mobility. 
And the people after Hurricane Katrina that moved to Houston did far, far better than the people that stayed in New Orleans. And so people move to Texas because there is low regulation, because you can have a job, because you can start a business and you can do all these things because there's not much regulation in Texas. But if it becomes so onerous, if the insurance becomes so expensive because of hurricanes, if the power becomes so inconsistent because of storms and freezes and heat, then perhaps people will want to leave and they'll want to get out of Texas. And so it is possible that's going to happen. It's just, I'm not sure it's there yet. A lot of those states that I just mentioned are traditionally sort of red states, a lot of conservative policies that come out of there. In fact, a lot of anti-climate change or just sort of put your head in the sand over climate change policies come from a lot of those states and a lot of their representatives. Do you think long-term with all of this sorts of growth, do you think those states might really want to rethink a lot of their policies? Or do you think there'll be a lot of citizens maybe moving there that want to advocate for rethinking climate change policies because now they're there and they've got a stake in the game and they want to probably stay there? Yeah, that or they'll put their head in the sand and hope for the best. I mean, well, let's think about those. Arizona voted for Biden this year by a small margin that was investigated over and over and over and over and over again by the Republicans. Texas is a little bit purple. It's not quite blue yet, but it's a little bit purple and it could theoretically go Democratic in a future election. I mean, these states are changing little by little. These old school people that are really conservative are in a sense dying off a little bit. People are moving to Texas also to get to Austin where the hipster and the uh, tech companies are. So yeah, it changes a little bit, but maybe the people just don't want to think about the climate change. Maybe they just want to say, ah, oh, never mind, it's all good. I'm happy to be well, it's here. Funny it's funny though, because do you think that the narrative over it has changed? Because I remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we were in of like drill, baby drill. And, you know, people just sort of wanted just to kind of say, this is, this isn't real. And now I, I feel like the national story is climate change is, is something that most people kind of accept. People accept the fact that there are droughts. People accept that like, there's a lot of wildfires going on. And I just don't feel like people say, this is just normal anymore, which I, I guess maybe is sort of progress on trying to, on trying to understand the issue. And a part of me just wonders if more and more people are living and experiencing it. And that has really kind of shifted how people are talking and thinking about this. Yeah, I think so. I think because it is daily news when you see, I mean, for a month or so, we've seen a story in the Wall Street Journal every day, or actually probably two, three months about California wildfires. It makes for very interesting pictures and video, and that is out there and people are seeing it. They're hearing about it. The floods and freezes in Houston and in Florida, it's real. It's good footage that people see, and it's always referenced as climate change, or by some media agencies, questionably climate change. Some people would say that. But if you hear it over and over again and again, it's not going to go away. And it's more so more prominent than the discussions of the national debt, which is what we were talking about with it before. Well, one of the things that you and I, of course, love are insurance markets. You've said it over and over so far today is just, look, prices will maybe solve this issue in a lot of ways as people can either afford things or they can't, and then slowly they'll start to move away. But one of the more interesting kind of hidden stories is sort of what's happening to insurance markets and municipal debt because of climate change. Bloomberg had a story where they just said, look, local cities are going to really struggle now to be able to provide services with climate change to certain people. And that might impact whether or not they can service their debt. And so I just wanted to read this paragraph. They said, 
California's hydroelectric production in the first four months of this year is 29% of that generated in the same period two years ago. The hydroelectric facility on Lake Oroville, for example, was forced to shut down for the first time when water levels dropped too low at the beginning of August. In Nevada, Lake Mead's capacity is at 35%, the lowest since the area that sends water and power throughout the southwest was created. Both situations could force local utilities to turn to more expensive and less climate-friendly options, such as natural gas-powered plants, the S&P said. And basically what they're looking at is, if you can't generate the kind of electricity that you could at a real cheap rate, you're going to have to pay for it. And now all of a sudden you can't service your municipal debt. Now you could all of a sudden face higher, uh, lower credit ratings and higher interest rates that could really crush cities. And while this is kind of like a nerdy, sort of like hard to kind of understand thing, you could see where cities could potentially go bankrupt, being unable to afford the debt that they've borrowed to just provide what their citizens expect from them in terms of water and electricity. Yeah, they've borrowed a lot of money and leverage it against this infrastructure that creates electricity through hydroelectric. And the water levels are so low, they're not generating much power. There's a great article in the New Yorker about these canyons that are emerging that haven't been seen since the 1930s when these dams were built. And so, yeah, if they can't pay their bills and their tax rates will go up, it'll be more expensive to live there. But again, it comes back to if the people really want to live there, they'll pay the higher taxes. Just like it's more expensive to live in Birmingham, Michigan, than it is to live in Oxford, Michigan. Some people still want to live in Birmingham and they'll pay the money for it. And I think that gets to this point. And you're, I don't think it's the rich leaving, as you've insisted before. I think it's the poor leaving because they can't afford to live there or they just live really rough lives because they can't service the taxes and the debt and so forth like that. It'll just be more wealthy people living there. So, yeah, it could happen. And also the insurance prices could drive people out or they just find compromises and keep going there. I don't know. You see the images of the homeless problem that they have in like Portland, Seattle, and throughout California. You yourself said that you were pretty surprised at how bad the homeless situation was in some of the areas that you went to in California this summer. I don't know if the poor can just leave. And I feel like you've got a lot of people now that are going to be exposed to areas that just can't even provide some of the most basic fundamental resources that humans humans need. I mean, the article just talked about how there's now 60 million people in America that are living in basically drought-affected areas in the West. It just seems like, once again, the fundamental assumption that the climate's going to stay the same, there'll always be water. I think it's got to be rethought. I think it's got to be challenged. Well, who's going to come in? Let's say you're right. Let's say that we have to really fundamentally change and we say we uh, people have to move out of these areas where there's just so much drought. What does that look like? That's it. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it just seems like it's it looks like a lot of people that are stuck in an area that just can't support them. I mean, I almost like 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 if you think about like a refugee camp in another area of the world that you've seen, where you just have a lot of people in in sort of a, a hopeless situation. Now, I know that's kind of dramatic to think like in America you're going to have some sort of hopeless situation, but. If you have a lot of people that can't go, I don't know now, don't you need to start bringing the resources to them? So the, uh, the New York Times did a story not long ago about this tiny island off the coast of New Orleans, and it was connected by this causeway that was always flooded out, and the bridges always went out, and the kids that lived there couldn't get to school. But people still wanted to live there, despite the fact it was constantly flooded by storms and everything else. And the government basically bought them out and told them they had to leave. And there are some people that resisted and didn't want to leave, but they had to go. And we're talking about a dozen families. 
But if you can think of it in that sense, is that people just, the government comes in and says, you got to leave and forces people to leave and people won't want to go. And they'll say, this place is great. I love it. It's mine. It's where my grandparents lived. I'm living here. Or you could look at it and say, like, it's like New Orleans after one of the giant storms where people are desperate to leave because they can't get what they need. And I think that's where you're going with this and that the government helps them out and gets them out. But I think they'd want to come back. And that's my whole point is like, find a way to provide the water and provide the things that we need and that we want to come back. I don't think people are going to leave willingly. And I don't think the government's going to be able to force them to leave on that big a scale. Well, and as you've said, maybe it's the insurance and the private price markets that will make this decision. I mean, you mentioned New Orleans, and I've always just wondered, why is it that we continue to want to rebuild places that we know inevitably are going to continue to get nailed by hurricanes? I'm not saying that you can't have some basic existence down there, especially for commerce and stuff like that, but to have highly a highly dense area of population that you know is going to get hit over and over. And I guess you could say, like two things. One, do people that want to rebuild in areas like that, is that, does that just show the ultimate of American resilience and toughness and that we're going to shout at the storm and we're going to just rebuild for the eighth time? Or does it just show the definition of like American insanity that we're going to continue to allow people to rebuild? We're going to continue to give them insurance that will allow them to rebuild, even though we know another storm is inevitably going to come. Because there's 400,000 people that want to live in New Orleans and they're willing to stick it out and they want to be there. And maybe it's ignorance, maybe it's arrogance, whatever. They're shaking their fist in the storm and say, this is where I live. I'm a Saints fan and I live in New Orleans. And I look out my window and see the dikes that are higher than my house that are protecting me from the Gulf or from Lake Pontchartrain. People want to be there. And I don't think we have the wherewithal to make people leave. And I don't think our political system would support that. So people are just going to stay as long as they stay. People left, like I said earlier, we're better off. But the people that want to stay still want to stay. Yeah, and you're right. And they have that right. And and in some ways, I have a, a strange admiration for the idea of like, no, like, I'm an American. I'm staying. I'm tough. I don't care what storm is coming. And, you know, they talked about how there is a a federal program from FEMA called the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program. And basically, apparently one of the options from this program is to basically buy a lot of these risky properties that have been hit over and over from hurricanes, buy them from the people, and then basically just sort of leave it as vacant land. And the idea is like, don't allow people to rebuild Do you think that's a good idea that the government gets into the idea of buying up properties and then just saying nobody else can build on this again? Yeah, I think that makes sense because that's the only way you get people out is to little by little buy up the property that people aren't using and to clear it out that way. That's the only thing that would using a market-based approach that people wouldn't be upset about because the landowner that's selling is selling for a higher price than they get ordinarily and they're happy with that. And then they can leave the land pharaoh and just wait. And so we did that. We've done that during the Great Depression where the government paid farmers not to farm. Like we can do this. And that's something that could work to slowly get people out. I'm not sure it's the best use of resources, but it's one that we could. I'd rather see a nudge like Vermont's doing, giving people 10 grand to move to Vermont. But again, we've come back to the idea that people don't want to move. People move within their county, but they don't move from county to county and they don't move from state to state nearly as much as they used to. And they're less willing to do it every single year. And I I don't get it. Maybe I don't get it because my 
dad grew up in Philly and then moved to Ohio and later to Michigan when he realized Ohio sucks. And my mom grew up in Ohio and moved to Michigan because moved to Delaware, then Michigan, because she realized Ohio sucks. Like she it's it's people were willing to move in my family. And I'm willing to move. I moved to California. I moved to Rochester. I've lived in four or five counties in my life. But a lot of people are just still living in the same county they grew up in. And I don't think they want to move at all. Well, I think in some ways, though, ultimately, you know, I think we're discounting the idea that like home is home. And as much as you and I love to kind of make fun of Michigan, it's a two-star state, or we live in flyover country, at the end of the day, it is home. It's where we have a lot of relatives and family and roots and connections. And I understand why people wouldn't maybe necessarily want to leave where they live, especially if they grew up there. And even if it is a hurricane zone or it's, it's losing its land due to you know, rising ocean, ocean levels and stuff like that, I get why people wouldn't want to leave just automatically. And you're right. Maybe over time they need to be nudged or there needs to be incentives and you know, at the same time, I, I still say like, hey, Vermont's willing to give a tech worker $10,000 to work remotely in their nice quaint town. But I don't think they're looking for an entry level service worker to move there. And I think that that's also, again, it's a, it's a very divided issue, right? The haves and the have nots. It will be the haves that are going to be sought out. It's not the have nots that people want moving to their town. Hey, at the same time, they need workers. And you know, as well as I, that in Mackinac Island in the summer, there's people that are living in less than fantastic conditions, but trying to provide fudge, trying to make omelets. And they'll bring people in from far away for that because they need those people. So we got to have that additional group. Maybe they have to build a working class suburb so that they can have enough workers to provide these services that they need. People are needed. It's just, are they willing, who's willing to come and move and supply that need? Now, that would be the interesting price signal, I think, is show me the town that is trying to lure in entry-level and service workers to get them to move there and work there. Now, that, I think, would be a fascinating thing to kind of look for. This is the study we come, came up with this week is let's create this trial city where you can come and live in wherever. Let's go Vermont and say you're going to be 10 miles outside Vermont in some farm area, and we'll have this community of working class workers that commute into Burlington to supply the labor that's needed at the various establishments there. And are you willing to move for that? And actually, if you think back, that's what people moved west for in the first place was that we're building this thing, whether it be the Hoover Dam or Los Angeles is growing and there's this movie industry. Here's a job. Move here. Do you want this job? And that's what brought people out west. In a sense, we're trying to bring them back. It's the opposite of that movement. Well, and, and you make a good point of that. Ultimately, why are places like Texas and Florida and Arizona so popular? One, because of the climate and stuff like that. But two, land is still relatively cheap, especially if you don't mind kind of living uh, a little bit further away from people. And regulations are fairly low, and therefore people get a lot of freedom, and there's a real appeal to moving there. And it kind of makes me wonder if, while maybe we'll never see major incentives for entry-level and service workers to move certain places, you are seeing like Amazon distribution centers popping up in places like Ohio and places that are relatively cheap to develop in or where there's workers that do want entry-level jobs. And you're starting to see maybe that it's not going to be a, a full-out incentive, but 
maybe the, the companies themselves will start to move there. Uh, you're seeing Intel building a major foundries now in places like Arizona. Again, the water issue, I wonder about that. Maybe they thought about it, you assume. You know, maybe ultimately the market will just kind of solve this and, and maybe it's much to do about nothing, but it is just sort of interesting to watch humans not necessarily making what you would think are rational choices for tomorrow, but maybe they are rational choices for today. And I think that's what it is, is today trumps tomorrow. Here's just kind of a final question then, is you mentioned earlier about repiping water from the Great Lakes. And a part of me did start to think about, okay, we do have the Great Lakes. We have major rivers in our country that are flooding sometimes. And do you think like our country should just undertake some sort of major geoengineering project where we've got major pipes that are ready to take the fresh water from flooded rivers, the Great Lakes, and move it west. And maybe we should start to refortify Florida and the Gulf Coast like they do, like, like Dubai. Remember, they built that whole like island where they just they, you know, kept putting sand in the ocean until they could literally build places for rich people to live. Should we just start to like fortify these areas and just say, you know what, we are going to beat climate change because we're America and we're just going to build our way out of it? I think that'll be a solution for some people. It doesn't work for Florida because Florida's rock is porous. And so if you build dikes, then the water will just come up from within. And so the Florida's just, they're, they're, they're in trouble. And no, every time concrete. I- concrete. We're just going to put so much concrete on the edges that we're going to build on top of it. I mean, it'll sink. It's built on quicksand. Florida's not, the thing with Florida is I, I see ads all the time in the Wall Street Journal about- you know, this condo in Florida or this giant tower in Florida, it just makes no sense. I can't, I can't imagine that it's a good idea because it's just all built on a shifting sand. But the other thing, the piping water out West, you're absolutely right. I think about this every time I see flooding in the Mississippi and the Missouri River in the Great Lakes and let's pump that water out West. And I think that, but then I think, how long does it take to drive out West? I mean, it's so far, you've done it. You haven't got it all the way to the Pacific Ocean like I have, but it's a long haul. Laying pipe that long, it would have to be gigantic pipes too. They'd have to be 10, 15, 20 feet in diameter. It would be a huge project and the water would be inconsistent coming. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to have to be desalinization. I think it's going to have to be reducing. And I think it can't be the way I think it is. But I kind of like the idea of the giant project. And could we make this work? Well, I mean, we have we already have oil pipes that cross the nation. The Alaskan pipeline is. I don't think that's the hard part of, of building more pipe or whatnot. I mean, yeah, I but those know. are like twenty-four inch pipes or eighteen-inch pipes. We're talking feet. It's going to be an order of magnitude so much greater. I mean, I can't even imagine. We again, we would need a civil engineer to really walk us through if this is crazy town or if this is actually an idea. <laughs> But again, it does seem theoretically possible that could you find ways to somehow hold excess waters and then somehow start moving it out west when you need it? I mean, the last couple of years, the Great Lakes were at their highest possible levels, right? So therefore, is there some sort of mechanism that triggers, okay, it's time to start rerouting that water out west or something like that? Now, I guess you could say, well, at what point when the lakes are low, do we say, yeah, west, you're not getting it? Uh <laughs> You know, I mean, and so I don't know how you'd work that. I'm sure it would be the most dysfunctional process we could ever imagine. But it seems like theoretically, in times of surplus water in the East, maybe you can move it West. And maybe also people would be like, no, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. 
I was out last summer on Har- near Harsons Island, which is a uh, weird island off the coast of Detroit, right up north of Detroit, where people live. And there's this weird ferry, and the houses are literally inches above the waterline. And it used to be a foot, two feet, three feet, and they were just inundated with water slapping at the base of the houses. And I just thought, how does the septic system work? And then everything was for sale because it looked like just like this. This is the end. This is not going to be a land anymore. This is. And yes, the water could go somewhere else and it could turn off and on. And we have that despair. But I don't think we're really thinking about how much water we're talking about. When I talked earlier about the California aqueduct, it is a river of water coming to Southern California and to the Central Valley from the mountains and from the Colorado. And it's a river that if it was in a pipe, it would have to be a 20 foot pipe. And we're talking, and that's not enough, not nearly enough. So we'd have to be piping that much water or more across. And it does make sense. And if it's raining in the east, then maybe the west isn't getting rain. If the west is getting rain, then maybe the east isn't. And then we can turn off this gigantic pipe. And I do like the idea of a big infrastructure project. We're spending ourselves into debt. Why not build a big thing? Why not be this thing? But I don't think that it's actually going to happen, specifically because the Midwest is terrified and has already passed legislation saying, no, we will not do this, despite the fact that those places out West with the money and the people want it. And I think part of it's resentment more than anything else. You beautiful people in California, Arizona, you don't get sun 360 days a year and all our water. Screw you. Yeah. And a part of me is like, good. Like I just, I'll, I'll, you know, (laughs) again, we're from Michigan, right? Like that's the one thing we have. I'm holding onto it with, you know, over my dead hands again, we've talked a lot about price signaling and how maybe prices will just sort of adjust all this and solve it. But I guess, wouldn't you just say that like drought and this climate change is nature's price signal to just say, look guys, like leave. And at the same time, probably all this geoengineering, like I think nature probably just intended for things to be what they are. And therefore maybe we shouldn't like mess with it all. Oh, yeah. I think that I don't know if nature intended in a specific way, but I think the situation that we count on is so small in the great scheme of things. The history that we're in at the moment or the last 50 years or 100 years is just a blink in time. And that the great trends that have happened over long periods of time are going to happen regardless of what American of what humans do. You know, there's a saying in economics that, uh, in the short run, government can outweigh economics, but in the long run, economics always wins. And the idea is that a business can get funding from the government for a while, but eventually it's going to go bankrupt if it's not good. And it's the same thing with this situation is if that's the trend of how the world works in terms of the planet itself and the way that rainfall and so forth is going to go, you can fight it for a while with all the things we can do with air conditioning and with water piping and so forth. But eventually, it's just going to become untenable. And as it becomes untenable, there's nothing we could do. But when does it become untenable? Are we talking 50 years, 100 years? If it's 200 years, then the whole point is moot. If it's five years, it's going to be a big issue. I don't think it's five years. There still might be enough time for you to get yours. That's for sure. Uh, You know, I guess the final, final question then is, your wife has always been very skeptical of space and, you know, Elon Musk and his desire to go live on Mars. A lot of other people are also very skeptical of this. It's like Mars is this, this inhospitable place that has no resources for humans to survive on. And therefore somebody who's like, no, we got to go to Mars. Like people look at them as if they're dumb. 
are we allowed to look at somebody who wants to move to Grand Junction, Colorado as almost like they want to move to Mars? Why are you going to this inhospitable place that has no resources? No, because if we live on Mars, we'd have to live under the uh, surface in tunnels and caves because of the radiation and so forth. Mars makes no sense. It's just a fool's dream. And Grand Junction, Colorado is beautiful and nice, and there's not much water, and you might have to have a rock yard, but that's all good. You can still get yours now and have a good time. And it's Colorado. West of, the, of Denver is a beautiful place. And you can have a wonderful time. So, no, you're not allowed to judge people that way. Well, but you just said, look, I can get a gray water system. I can drink my own urine in my shower water. <laughs> I did that's not say I drink my own urine. That's what I have to do on Mars. And I'm going to have a big rock garden. That's what Mars is going to look like. I don't know. In some ways, they, there seems to be a similarity here. No, Mars, you live underground in a tunnel. Like, this is just no good. <laughs> fair enough I, I i hear your point i just think in some ways they seem like they're getting closer and closer uh to looking the same but i guess we'll have to see and as you said hey if you can get it in the next five years then congratulations and as we've said before to our generations that are coming before us uh we're sorry we're gonna use it all up now for ourselves <laughs> yeah don't we blame the boomers can't we just now we're just gonna take the fall too we're gonna be like hey we want to get ours while we can I really want to drive a truck. So I'm going to drive a truck and damn the rest of you. Well, again, there's no, we don't put any sort of value on the future, right? We discount for the future generations, what the life is like, as long as we get ours now. Hey, the most responsible companies may be ironically, the auto companies that are doubling down on electric vehicles and they're going to put to everything they can towards that. And now solid state batteries, which may or may not come to fruition in the next 10 years. And that might be the biggest driver, not because they want to help the environment, but because they see the trend coming due to business and Tesla and many other things. Maybe they're our saviors and slow things down. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll have to, that will be another story for another day. We'll have to look and see if we can uh, thank the auto companies for everything. <laughs> well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking to you with this week and uh, I look forward to talking with you next week. All right. Let's check this off. Another issue solved. <laughs> Definitely. Take care. Bye-bye.